I couldn't speak English at the time. I was still speaking Chinese at home. And so when my parents took me to kindergarten, I would play with the kids and some kids spit on me. And so I would go to the teachers and point and try to gesture. And I think at some point I probably punched a kid and the principal had to call my parents in. And they were like, oh, did she get picked on? If she got picked on, then good. She's doing the right thing. (laughs) So this is, again, why I feel like I was raised free range. You're so young at that point that you don't even know what's going on. I'm Lucia Liu, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Lucia Liu. Lucia is the founder and CEO of Rock the Boat, a really interesting podcast community organization focused on Asians challenging the status quo. She's spoken to some really awesome Asian American leaders, entrepreneurs, entertainers, and executives, including Andrew Yang, but more important to me, the founder of Guitar Hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, I've listened to her podcast and I'm like, wow. I, it's just much respect for the, the production talent and the, the thoughtfulness that goes into the conversations and the mission of her work. I don't know, Sharon. I mean, she was a free range Asian kid, which was a very foreign concept to me. Yeah, she used that concept. It's so funny. Free range chickens, free range children. And she she called herself that in in the guise of the fact that her parents kind of let her follow her own passions, her own interests, shape her own destiny and didn't really have any guardrails around what she had to be or do. And she talks to us a lot about that type of freedom and how that empowered her to eventually become who she is today. So that that was great. Yeah, she's had some like really cool roles, you know, at VC backed startups. Now she's in VC, but she worked at Amex and quit to become a chocolatier. Yeah, just kind of a real wandering mind is like the wrong way to say it. But just like, what compels her, she just jumps in like wholeheartedly. And I kind of took that from a lot of the stories from her life and her childhood, even moving around. Yeah. Yeah. She, she told us that she had lived in, I want to get this right. So I'm going to refer back to my notes, but I think it was seven states and 14 schools in her childhood, which is a That's lot crazy. of moving around because I was born in, and raised in New York City. And as of today, 41 years later, I still live in New York City. <laughs> You just I, told everyone how old you are, I, Sharon. Yeah, oh, that's okay. I feel like I've told people that before. And if not, now you guys know how old I am. Older than me <laughs> by a few months. <laughs> and I will always be older than you. Isn't that, the, isn't that the beautiful thing? I will always be older than you. Age is a state of mind. Time true. is a lake. It's true. Well, look, what's fun about Lucia is we're actually going to be on her podcast soon. So we're not sure when this episode is going to come out, but this is a two-parter. So hear what... Sharon and I get out of Lucia and then check out Rock the Boat, the podcast to see what Lucia gets out of Sharon and me. So please meet our friend Lucia. Lucia, thank you for joining the pod. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, as good as can be. (laughs) The last few months have been really crazy with everything that's been happening with COVID. But yeah, trying to do my best. Well, don't worry. By the time this podcast airs, since we like, usually air them like a month later, I'm sure everything <laughs> in the world will be fine. There won't be another crisis yeah. that we're dealing with. We will have so. gone back to normal. It'll be all sunshine and roses again. That would honestly be ideal. Fake news. Normal doesn't exist anymore, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was going to say, I totally understand how you feel because a lot of my episodes, like the Kai Huang episode that you just mentioned, I interviewed him in December of last year. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. I got, we, we got to compare spreadsheets when I just invented a column in our spreadsheet where it's like date interviewed, date aired, and I'm getting scared at some of these days. But okay. <laughs> People kind of know who you are. And that's why I'm so excited that you were on the shows together because you're the founder and CEO of Rock the Boat, which is this really good podcast. 
about Asians who are challenging the status quo. And you've talked to really important people like Kai from Guitar Hero and Andrew Yang, et cetera. But my first question, and I love to ask people, is who were you before any of that? What's the story of little Lucia when you were a kid? Yeah, totally. It feels like this is really funny because this is the exact question that I ask a lot of my guests. We've all read the same podcast book. (laughs) We've actually just stolen your whole interview guide. You'll see. (laughs) Well, I mean, they do say imitation is the best form of flattery. Yep, that's right. (laughs) I was going to say great minds think alike, but yeah. (laughs) Even better, even better. So I can like a true marketer and advertiser. (laughs) So little Lucia, you'll hear this a lot on Rock the Boat, actually, but I think little Lucia was pretty wild. The best way that I've always explained, especially to my Asian friends, especially to my Chinese friends, is that I was raised like a free range chicken. So unlike the tiger moms of the world, my parents kind of just let me do whatever I wanted. And I grew up mostly in the American suburbs, so pretty average childhood. The thing that's not very average about my childhood is that we moved about every two years or so. And so I lived in seven different states, and I've attended 14 different schools. So I was always the new kid. And that came with its own set of challenges. So as a kid, (laughs) I feel I was very different as a kid from as I am now. But as a kid, I was an only child. I like to, I think, invent things and what was something you invented? Tell stories. Can you a story about something you invented? Oh gosh. <laughs> as a kid, I would always tinker. So in elementary school, there was a time when my family and I lived in New Jersey and my cousins lived in New York City. They would come to New Jersey and visit us on the weekends. And so I would get really excited because as an only child, It's a very lonely existence being an only child, but my parents worked. And so I didn't feel like I had a lot of friends. Plus, like we moved around a lot. And so whenever my cousins came over, it was kind of my time to hang out and play and do things. So then I would always come up with these really strange and elaborate, I guess, games to play with my cousins. And so once they came over and I had basically established this carnival in my room. (laughs) That sounds fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yes, and probably for me, but I don't know about for my cousins. Did you have tickets? You totally had tickets. I had tickets. <laughs> I had tickets. Those like the hole puncher. Yeah. The hole puncher things that, that yeah. you had. And then you have these little like dots that end up you have once you punch holes through the paper. Yep. So you used to make confetti tickets. out of that. Oh my God, you're so cool. I would have loved <laughs> to come to your carnival. <laughs> But yeah, I think just as a kid, I did a lot of make-believe because at the time there was no internet. I mean, God knows if there was internet, maybe I would have learned calculus or something instead. (laughs) Good Asian. No, I, (laughs) my daughter is four and she's an only child and we relent sometimes on videos, but sometimes we just watch what she does and her playing by herself and she has invented games and it's, I don't know what half of them mean, but I just kind of like, (laughs) I'm along for the ride. It's the best part. I feel like as a child, the best part is being able to make up your own world and kind of build on top of that. And I think that's probably where my love of storytelling came along and my curiosity for people. I think as an only child, I never had to live with another child or anybody else. And plus like moving around a lot. I think one of the key questions I always had in my head was, what are other people thinking? Why do they think this way? It really honed my curiosity for people. Walk me through your seven states. What were they? Oh, gosh. So the first one was Ohio. So my father got his PhD, model minority right there. My my father got his PhD at the University of Toledo. He has a degree in electrical engineering. So he actually went to the States before my mom and I joined him. So I was about two. And I remember... (laughs) This is my grandparents and my parents telling me, but as it turns out, as I was two, my dad, we took him to the airport to fly to the States and everybody in the family said, okay, we're not going to cry. Everything's going to be okay. And then I was just sitting there and then holding onto the screen door saying, dad, come back. Why are you leaving us? Come back. Take me with you. And then everybody just started crying. (laughs) 
Yeah. So to me, it was interesting because he left to the States before we did. And I do have some recollection of that. But the first date was Ohio. And (laughs) the first day we arrived, my mom and I arrived to Ohio, my dad's car broke down. And we had to ride along with a police officer to get to our, our home. So yeah, I'd like to say that the first state I lived in was Ohio. And the first day in America, I rode in a police car to our apartment in Ohio. Wow. <laughs> Exciting times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very fun times. After my dad graduated, we moved to Maryland. We stayed there for a year and a half. And then Pennsylvania, we stayed in Pennsylvania for about 10 months. And then we moved to Austin, Texas, which <laughs> was a pretty big move for us. Yeah. From the East Coast all the way to the middle. Yeah, exactly. And Austin was not Austin before. We literally have a video recording. How old were you in Texas? I was, I think, seven. So back in the day in Austin, Texas, this was, again, before it was really a city. My parents have a literal recording of them taking a video of the surroundings in Austin. And (laughs) they basically said, we just arrived in Austin. There's nothing much here. It's all like mountains. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Because now it's just this huge city. Yeah. A bustling town. Yeah. The university. Yeah. I have to ask as a kid at seven, because I grew up in Alabama and it's like a foreign country sometimes. And I say that positively and negatively. Coming from the East Coast, effectively, to Texas as a little Chinese girl at seven. What was that like for you? And especially this is Austin before Austin was cool. Yeah, this is before Austin was cool. Well, I think the first thing, as a kid, you don't really think that much, right? So as a kid, I think the first thing that I realized was (laughs) it was January and it was 99 degrees outside and we went to the pool. And I thought, this place is great. I can go to the pool in January versus when we first moved to Ohio, there was three feet of snow on the ground and I was probably four. And I was literally sitting on the snow. <laughs> like just It's like three feet of snow and I'm just sitting right on top of the snow and I'm not sinking in or anything. I'm just on the snow. Right. So we went from that to Texas where it was just warm all year round. I was outdoors all the time. Honestly, I love Texas. I really did. The school system, I can't say that there was a great education system, but I just remember making a lot of friends there. We had a really good principal. The teachers, again, model minority. I was teacher's pet, (laughs) but I got along with a lot of the teachers and the students there were really welcoming. I didn't experience any sort of racism. And honestly, I think besides kindergarten, which (laughs) that's a different story, I hadn't experienced any sort of racism. So we'll we'll go back to kindergarten. Yeah, I want to hear about kindergarten. Oh, kindergarten. Kindergarten was fun. (laughs) So I couldn't speak English at the time. I was still speaking Chinese at home. And so when my parents took me to kindergarten, I would play with the kids and I wouldn't know how to do something or like I wouldn't have to say anything. And some kids spit on me and I didn't really know how to explain that to the teachers. And so I would kind of go to the teachers and like point and try to gesture and I didn't know how to do it. And I don't really remember if this was true or not, but I think at some point I probably punched a kid and (laughs) the principal had to call my parents in and they were like, hey, your daughter's kind of violent. And my parents are like, oh, did she get picked on? If she got picked on, then good. She's doing the right thing. (laughs) 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 So it just felt like, oh, this is again why I feel like I was raised like free range. My parents honestly did not. They were not strict about anything. But yeah, so that was kind of the, I think the first time that, and you're so young at that point that you don't even know what's happening or what's going on. It wasn't until we actually moved back to the East Coast from Texas, we moved to New Jersey. We actually lived in Edison. We moved to Edison first. And at the time, I think Edison wasn't as Asian. I mean, I think now a lot of Indians live in Edison, New Jersey, and like a lot of Chinese people and a lot of Asians and Taiwanese, right? It's kind of known for that. But before then, it was still not that high of a percentage, I would say maybe 15% 15 Asian. But still, there were Asians. And so again, I didn't feel like a misfit or anything too much in elementary school in Jersey. There was this like one instance where some kid 
would try to, <laughs> they, they would make up songs, right? And so my last name is Lou. And then there's this kid whose name is Victor and his last name is Wu. And so they're just like, they would do a sing song and be like, oh, Lucia Lou and Victor Wu. And that was annoying. But again, it wasn't as bad. It wasn't until we moved to South River in New Jersey, which is closer to Trenton. And that area is not as, di- like it's diverse, but it has a lot more Hispanics can't remember if there were actually African-Americans or black students in that neighborhood, but it was definitely a lot of Portuguese and Hispanics. And that's, I think, the first time when I got the whole slanty eyed, been called chink. And that was really strange to me because I've lived in so many different places and that's never happened before. So it felt kind of odd. Yeah. And how old were you when you were in New Jersey? This was fifth and sixth grade. So probably around 11 or 12. I want to ask a question. When the first time I had something pretty negative happen to me, probably definitely preteen, I'm guessing seven or eight on a street in the suburb where I grew up in Alabama, but you were a free range kid and I kind of was too. Did you bring it up to your parents or do you not? I don't think my parents still know. I mean, they probably do at this point because they've heard me mention it. But at the time when bad shit happened, I guess. I'm genuinely curious because you said you were a free range kid. Your parents weren't like the other Asian parents. So when the bad shit happened, not the kindergarten story, but the New Jersey story, what do you tell your parents? Did you tell your parents? I did not tell my parents for the middle school stuff. Why not? I think mostly because I didn't take it to heart. And then the second part was like my best friend was Hispanic. She was actually don't know what type of, I know she was Latinx, but I just don't know what part. And to me, it just felt like it's just like kids, right? And it doesn't matter. Plus, I'm probably going to move in two more years, so it really wouldn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think it just didn't really register in my mind. But actually, that question reminded me of this time that I feel very embarrassed about, actually, when this was in elementary school when I was younger. And I remember I rode my bike out And (laughs) I fell on my bike and I scraped my cheek. And so I went home and I was bleeding. And my dad was so angry. He was just like, did somebody do this to you? Are you okay? Did somebody do this to you? And I was so afraid that I was just, yeah, someone did it to me. Meanwhile, it was totally, I knew I did it to myself, right? I fell off my bike. And I just remember my dad charging out the door, screaming at all the kids in our neighborhood. And it's like, who did this? <laughs> and when he got back, I was like, dad, actually, I did it. <laughs> you saw the rage. And I just- saw the rage. <laughs> but I think that was probably subconsciously the moment where I was like, oh, my parents have my back. If something bad were to happen, like they have my back. And I never felt ashamed of my identity. I felt confused. There were definitely moments where I was super confused because I was forgetting my Chinese and I was still not extremely proficient in English. And so there were moments where I'm just like, who am I? What am I? Where do I exist in this weird in-between zone? But I was never ashamed. What did your parents want you to be when you grew up? I do care what you wanted to be. But (laughs) again, this idea of being a free range Asian kid, we are a rarer breed. (laughs) We are. We are a very rare breed. I really appreciate it. To be honest, my parents never had any expectations of what I should be. They only had expectations of what I shouldn't be. And I think. Oh, do tell. Like what? What what can you not be? Podcaster? No, I actually think this is really funny. My parents told me not to be an electrical engineer. (laughs) Like your dad? (laughs) Yes. And my mom. So with my mom, the story is that she's actually very talented from a literary perspective. She's very right-brained and she's very talented in writing, in the creative arts. She used to dance. She sang. And so she actually wanted to, in China, this is a bit of Chinese history. So my parents grew up during the Cultural Revolution. So they actually didn't go to school very much. It was up until China basically stopped all high-level education. So they stopped colleges. They basically stopped school. So growing up, my parents didn't really go to school that much. But they were really lucky because they were the first year that became eligible in 1977. It was the first year that they were eligible to go to college. 
But the thing is, the entrance rate for college was really, really, really small. I think it was some ridiculous number of people would be able to go to college. And basically, it was just like high school. They just crammed like crazy (laughs) for the exam. And they were lucky enough to get in. And in college, there's two tracks. Once you're in that track, you're in that track. You can't change majors. It's not like America where you can kind of just Mm -hmm. go to college and then figure it out. In China, it's you either go the STEM route and do engineering or you do the literature route and do more creative writing or the creative field. And my mother really wanted to go on the creative field and even her teacher wanted her to do it. But my grandmother was the one who basically disallowed it for her and convinced her to go the engineering route because there was more potential for that route. And so my mom was basically forced into engineering. And that's where she met my dad. But she kind of looks back on it and she's always been pretty unhappy that she had to go that route and not be able to pursue what she wanted to do. And so for my parents, they were both just do what you want to do. Don't worry about doing STEM or anything like that. Even though growing up, I was really good at chemistry. I was really good at, it was all right at math. It kind of sucked at physics, but there's a reason to that. I had to learn physics in Chinese, (laughs) but they were kind of just always like, yeah, just pursue whatever you want to pursue. And they really never had expectations for me. It kind of reminds me of that Thomas Jefferson quote, something like, I must study politics such that my sons have the liberty to study math and philosophy. Mm. My sons must study math and philosophy so their kids can study painting and poetry and music or something like that. But it's basically this kind of generational choice that is made. And I'm starting to feel it now. I mean, my kid can't be a liberal arts major, let's be clear. No, but (laughs) she still can't. Maybe her kids can. No, no English majors. No English majors. Why? (laughs) I'm an engineer who's not doing engineering work, right? And I remember sitting around the, it must have been in high school, sitting around the table talking to my parents about college. And I wanted to be an artist. And my dad's an architect, professor of architecture. And I was like, I want to be an artist. You're an artist. You're an architect. Why'd you do it? Don't you love art? And he's like, son, I became an architect because I didn't get into medical school. And it was kind of the argument, okay, fine, go do this computer engineering thing because you play with computers. And then you'll take the MCAT. And let's be clear, I completely bucked that trend over and over and over again with every choice I made. I was having a conversation with another podcaster about this this morning. I don't know how that got wired into me because my sister wanted to be a doctor and wanted to be a teacher. And she is a doctor who teaches medical students now, right? But I think about that a lot. I'm glad I, I stuck out the engineering, not just because it gave me the backup, but it gave me like a mode of thought. And a little bit of street cred, right? When you went back to business school and you get the job and blah, blah, blah. It opened doors that I couldn't have gotten open on my own. And I think, God, I hate to say this about English majors. Like, sorry, English majors out there. Because I feel like every English major I know winds up going to law school. And it's like, they didn't really want to do that eventually. And so it's less about this. God, I'm totally becoming an Asian parent now. But I don't know, Sharon, what was your calculus? But finish your thought. So is it because you only want her to pursue things that are going to be lucrative later in her career? No, things that will give you options. It's less about the money. And it's more about the things that are going to box you in. Again, there's a million English majors. Please don't look. They're not listening to the show. So it's fine. No one's listening. (laughs) Hi, mom. All the English majors I know now work with me as copywriters. (laughs) That was I was always the evil marketing man. I never as a guy who ran marketing at startups. Yeah, we didn't hire marketing majors. We hired or comms majors or PR majors. We hired English majors. Right. I need you to write MarTech copy. Mm -hmm. And that's literally what they're doing. It's like, I went to law school or I write copy for some evil marketing company. That's not what they set out to do. That's not what they wanted to do. I don't think I I know a lot of English majors that became law law students, though. I can name three, literally. And one of them I want on the show at some point. But it's just has less to do with the lucrative why my dad said go to medical school. That's where you're going to make the most money. But it's... And definitely, guys, argue with me on this point, because what do you want your kids to be? I find myself at that trapping in that moment. And my wife and I literally have this joke of it can't be an English major. She can do anything she wants. And and that's a catch-all for things. If you love art, go do art. And my dad actually told me that. He was like, 
don't do the thing you love for a living is so contrary and right. But it's like, because everyone now says chase your passions. But he's like, I remember him saying, or someone said this, if what you love is what's putting food on the table, and this is for that first job, that second job, you will come to resent it. I don't believe that. Definitely, it comes down to the options thing for me, like hedging your bets. I think that is a fair point. And I think it is a contrarian point because to your earlier point about how nowadays everybody is encouraging you to pursue your passions, do what you love, etc. But I think the people, especially from our parents who are immigrants who kind of came from a place where they're just not at a higher level on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, you talk a lot about that on your show. Right, exactly. The concept of options, having options is very powerful. And when you go pursue a path with very few or narrow options, it does put you on this sort of place where it is more difficult. It's like a path that is just more difficult. And I think the communication these days isn't good enough about highlighting that, right? And highlighting that if you do pursue something that has a narrow path, it is more difficult. It's a more difficult path. What you know, but there's creating your own options, though. Not everyone has the entrepreneurial mindset like you, Sharon. I guess or, so. I, and I don't. I actually don't believe that that can be taught. I think you can teach someone to draw. Mm-hmm. You can teach someone to program. But I think some of these innate mentalities, you have kids, you notice your, what your kids' tendencies are. My kid's going to be able to, I don't know what the saying is, but you know, sell a bridge or whatever. She's going to have that. She's already conning and negotiating with us right now, right? Oh, um, definitely. Yeah, I can see that. But like, <laughs> so entrepreneurship, why can't you make your own options to kind of just come back to that? I don't think everyone has that in them. I wish we could teach that, you know, maybe like home ec, entrepreneurship should be a class, but I don't know. It's this idea of do what you love, but I actually think it's the intersection. It's three things. It shouldn't just be do what you love because not all of us can be on American Idol, right? It's like a Venn diagram of what you love, what you're good at, and what the world, God, I hate saying this, what the world will pay you for. Ikigai. That's exactly the Venn diagram. It's this Japanese term, ikigai, right? It's the intersection of what you love, what you're good at, what the world will pay you for. And it is damn hard to achieve. (laughs) <laughs> at least that's how I feel you like think I that you're not even paid for your podcast. Lucia? No, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> podcast, but it's a building block. Right. And I think to Sharon's earlier question of, can you create your own destiny and create your own options? I think the world that we live in today has enabled more people to create their own options and be able to pursue things that they previously couldn't pursue before. I mean, the fact that we can record a podcast right now and distribute it on our own, right? That feels like something you couldn't have done 20 years ago or 10 years ago. But just, even to be a pessimi- just to be a pessimist, sorry, I'm going to be the downer on this episode. Don't take my episode down. <laughs> uh, it, it, you guys brings them all down. Lucia yeah. brings them all down. <laughs> I am I'm a perpetual cynic. That's why um, he's here. <laughs> yeah. No, the barriers to entry are lower than they've ever been. And that makes it harder than it's ever been because let's talk about podcasting. There's a bazillion of them already. The long tail is in full effect right now. And yes, there are things about creative and strategy and production value that separate the wheat from the chaff. I mean, I think that's the same as the argument that businesses, there are a dime a dozen, there's tons of them, 90% of them fail. I'm not arguing for or against the point that you're trying to make. I think it's very real. To your point, yeah, there's 750,000 podcasts out there. And to build a brand and build an identity for a piece of content is similar to building a blog or building any sort of traction on a piece of content or creative or art or art piece, right? So to your point, yes, barriers to entry are absolutely very low. And I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. I mean, it's similar to YouTube, right? Back in the day, if you were a YouTuber and you gain traction, it works out. But today there's so many people on YouTube and on Snapchat and on a lot of these like social media platforms that once as they were growing, you could have grown with them. But 
now it's really difficult to differentiate yourself. So to your point, yeah, absolutely. It is difficult. But is that a reason to not do it? That's the question. (laughs) I think that's the question, right? And I think it's a difficult question to answer because I kind of liken it to being a pro athlete, right? It's similar because one out of hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people are able to make it. And to be that one, I think that's also the perceptional fallacy of VC, where it's like to make it to a unicorn company, you have to have so many factors. To make it to a pro athlete, you have to have so many factors. To make it to be a Michelle Fawn on YouTube, you have to have so many factors, right? And I think all these people and everybody is trying and it's a lot harder and it's a much more difficult path to take versus if you're on the doctor or lawyer path, it's very clear. Certainty, yeah. Get to get to those paths, right? It's like you take it's the LSAT or the MCAT. Exactly. It's very defined. You know what the milestones are. It's not easy, (laughs) but you know where the milestones are. You know where you have to be in order to land in that quartile. And then once you get there, you're there. So I think it's, it really just depends on the person. And I think it's really dependent on people understanding themselves and what they want. And I know it's funny because you talk about all these English majors who then end up being lawyers. I know all these lawyers who then become creatives, right? Right. (laughs) It's kind of a full circle thing, right? Like Abigail Hingwen, she used to work at Solomon and Cromwell. She's Harvard undergrad. And she recently just published a novel and it got optioned for a screenplay. So now she's thinking about how to be a writer full time. She's got an MFA. So I think what's interesting to your point, Remen, is that there's just different ways to live. And The safer, more secure in certain way, potentially, is to get that law degree, work a few years in a law firm, have that financial cushion, maybe. And then feel your soul die, and that's the (laughs) impetus to go change. No, I mean, mean, I'm sarcastic. Kind of, right? Yeah. I think hardship hardship actually, pain drives decisions. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I totally and agree I, with that. And I don't even know if it's just feel your soul dime, but <laughs> I do feel that. I felt like in corporate, it did feel a bit like that. It was very soul draining. But at the same time, I think what people don't tell you these days is that it's not a question of do you try or do you not try? And it's not a question of do you pursue your passions or not pursue your passions? It's a question of trade-offs. It's a question of what are you willing to give up? in order to have that sort of thing in your life, right? And I think one of the key stories that I really took to heart from interviewing some of the guests on my podcast were from this one guy named David Liang. He's the founder of Shanghai Restoration Project, which is this music group. And their claim to fame back in 2008 was he mixed art like hip hop and R&B beats with Chinese instruments. And they became pretty big and they kind of went on tour. His background, you would have never guessed. He's a Harvard undergrad, studied applied math to economics and worked at Bain for a few years and always grew up loving music and jazz and the creative arts. Like his family was very creative and later on pivoted, (laughs) but he's still trying to figure it out. And I think he once told me the story of how for a while he was just as a struggling artist and he's just watching his bank account dwindle and dwindle and dwindle until it became very freeing for him where he was like, oh, well, I'm not dead yet. So at least something's working. So, I mean, you kind of consider his background and what he could have been. I mean, he could have easily been maybe partner at a big consulting firm or probably gone in-house and became a VP at some company and made a lot more money than he does right now. But his trade-off is that he wants the art. He wants to be able to create. And what he had to end up (laughs) doing was he had to go and tutor calculus, (laughs) Right. So I love how you brought the math back to it. That's yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's like, oh, the people who need calculus tutors are the folks who work at Google and stuff so they can they can pay for it. I was like, that is so funny. But 
at the end of the day, I think it really is just a true deep understanding of who you are and what you're willing to trade off because it is a trade off. There's no romanticizing of building a suddenly you're going to build a billion dollar, like you're going to jump from this corporate life to building a billion dollar business to then having all these accolades or whatever. It is honestly a trade off and you're either going to be at a soul crushing job or you're going to be at a life <laughs> crushing endeavor. Well, or life affirming even. There's this founder investor, he's had two very successful exits. And I don't want to name drop him, but like, I know who you're talking he, about. I think I don't think you do, but we're, oh. we won't play the name game because I don't know if they would want. <laughs> but I asked him this question when I was considering my jump into startups. And he's like, well, I've had a good exit. And I look at a lot of entrepreneurs to invest in. And the choice when I'm making the decision to invest is, are they doing it because it's something that's cool? Are they doing it because it's something they can't live in a world where that thing doesn't exist? And that latter one forces some of the choices you talk about, Lucia. And I'm not going to go broke for this podcast. Sorry, Sharon. But I believe in it. And I'll spend time and money out of pocket because I believe in what the premise is loosely, understanding and empathy. And Lucia, I listened to your first few episodes. You've started, I think, about a year before us. And you had to make some decisions. I guess my question is, to answer that investor's questions, what's the world you're trying to create with your podcast? Why can't you live in a world where Rock the Boat doesn't exist? Putting it back on you, why are you doing your thing? What motivates you every morning to hit record, to edit episodes, to shill and market, et cetera, et cetera? It's hard. I'm not going to lie. There are definitely weeks where it's like, oh, it's another episode. But every time I put out an episode and every time I interview somebody and hear their story, that other people haven't heard before. And people reach out and say, oh my gosh, I wish this existed 10 years ago. Oh my gosh, this really made me think about my identity. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that Rotten Tomatoes was founded by Asians. I think those comments really keep me moving. And I think the reason why I get out of bed every day doing Rock the Boat is because I feel like there's just no space where in which these stories can get told. There's no space or content or education where Asians who feel like they are alone, especially those like solo entrepreneurs, especially those people who have veered off a traditional career path and who have had to have these really difficult conversations with their parents, they might not have a place to turn, right? And I, I feel like if this platform or content or community can reach them and provide them with the sense that, hey, you're not alone. I feel like that already speaks volumes to me and makes me feel like that I can at least make an impact to to their lives. Personally, this actually, this idea stemmed because even though I was raised pretty free range, when I left my corporate job at Amex to start a chocolate business, my mom and I had somewhat of a falling out where she just couldn't understand why I was leaving a very stable, comfortable job to do manual labor. Because I was working 18-hour shifts at the commissary kitchen that I rented out. I was selling at markets on the weekends, and I was just doing a lot of the heavy lifting of building a product business, which at the end of the day doesn't require that much brain power, but requires a lot of physical labor. And so she felt like I was wasting my, my college degree. And as I was trying to build this chocolate business and trying to grapple with <laughs> what my my parents and my mom was thinking Gimlet Media started the startup podcast. And I was, I remember just like listening to them and tapping my chocolate molds <laughs> furiously. <laughs> and then just thinking, wow, this is incredible. I'm able to listen to a story in my ear. And I felt so close to the narrators. I felt like I could peer into his life. Yeah. The intimacy of podcasts, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. It felt like, oh, wow, this is really incredible. And I started looking around for Asian podcasts. And I started looking around also for Asian resources around career navigation. And I couldn't find anything. So I figured if I was looking for it, then maybe other people are looking for it. 
So I think that's really why I started Rock the Boat. It's to be able to share and highlight these stories of incredible Asian Americans who are doing things that are different from what traditional media portrays us to be or traditional families think that we're supposed to be. And also just showcase people who are leading the charge and making change and who aren't afraid to to stand up and rock the boat. You totally just stole all of our Asian listeners. Thanks, Lucia. <laughs> With that answer. I don't know if that's true. She's a pro. I feel like, yeah, I feel like you scripted that somehow and worked that no, out at the end. <laughs> I've had to say it a lot of times. <laughs> Dude, what are your kind of a, a last serious question? What do your parents think of the podcast? They commented on it on episode one of the podcast. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that was the very yeah. beginning, but that was episode one, X thousand, uh, hundred episodes or so back. But now you've been doing it for a year. Now, what do they think about it? I think they're proud of, of the podcast. <laughs> You're like hedging your answer. You're hedging your answer. I'm trying to figure out what the right... Because it's like my mom will always... She always tells me, she's like, I'm really proud of you. I'm really proud of the podcast. She's also very much, no matter what you do, I'm going to support you. And no matter what your choice is, I know you'll figure it out. Yeah. And it's it's great. But then in front of my grandpa, she's like, I don't know what Lucia does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My parents are kind of aware that I'm doing this because I'm on the sabbatical. I don't know how much they've listened. My sister listens to it. Sharon, what's going on with your family in this podcast? I shouldn't say nobody listens to it. I know that my... You I still have a job. You still I still have a, a job. <laughs> I don't think my parents listen to it. I think my dad listened to the intro episode. Mm-hmm. My sister listens to it. My cousin's wife and Teresa, hi, Teresa. She listens to every single one. She's one of our loyalist listeners. And then I have a couple of cousins that listen to it, but I feel like my mother has never listened to it. Yeah. I'm going to like start seeding messages in our podcast and see if she mentions them to me. <laughs> I, well, so here's the thing, her. Lucia, you saw me like get off on a few stories here and there, like tangents. And I've had my sister text me. She's like, that's not what dad said that time. <laughs> yeah. But I've never had my parents be like, why are you telling these stories? <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? Yeah. So I know I'm kind of in the clear. I jokingly say hi, mom, all the time. That's right. literally our email address for the for the podcast. That's and, funny. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think mom, mom, mom and dad. I don't think mom, mom, you're not listening, are you? <laughs> well, my my mom and dad are protected behind the Great Firewall of China, but <laughs> I try to like send them MP3s of episodes when I can. They listened to the Andrew Yang episode and. They were very surprised that an Asian was running for president. And so they felt they were really excited to hear. And they're like, Lucia, why can't you do that? What's this podcast? Why aren't you running? (laughs) No, I don't think they would want me to. (laughs) Because they know that I'll do it. (laughs) That's the worst thing about me that I feel like you can't play a game of chicken with me because I would just go do it. And then it's the worst. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's how I got you on this podcast. Yeah, no, they enjoyed the episodes that I send them. And they have different comments about it. And they're like, relatively somewhat engaged. But I try to send them episodes when I can. But yeah, I don't get to download all the episodes and send them all the time. My mom really wants me to just listen to her play the piano. So (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lucia, we've covered so much ground. And I think if you're ready for it, Now's a good time to head into speed round. What do you think? Sure. Yeah, happy to. All right. Speed round. First question. What's one thing about you no one expects? (laughs) (laughs) The fun part about speed round is it never goes fast. Yeah, the first one is always the slowest. (laughs) You're like, didn't I tell you everything already? What the hell? I don't know what the first thing people don't expect about me. And I guess they don't expect that. I'd say I speak pretty perfect Chinese and I can read and write. But that's also because I went to high school in Shanghai. I will accept that. I was hoping for something juicier than that, but I'll accept that. (laughs) I'm pretty boring. I'm sorry. You totally gave us a model minority answer. Yeah, you really did. You're like, no one knows I speak Chinese. (laughs) No, that's not even true. Sorry. I feel like that's a lie. I think 
because I'm so like upfront about it. I think everybody knows that I speak Chinese. <laughs> What's a book or a movie that has characters that you really relate to? Hmm. Gosh, these are really not speed rounds. These are that's, really that's- difficult questions. <laughs> That's why I love still call it. We make it a point to yeah. call it speed run at the front just because of this awkwardness. It's great. I mean, this is just because it's top of mind. I don't know if I really relate to it at all, but I've been reading Ali Wong's Dear Girls and I thought it was very interesting. But again, like, I don't know if I could like really relate to them. What is your favorite mom dish? My mom makes this river. It's like... I don't even know what it's called in English, but in Shanghai, there's these fish that are freshwater fish and she cooks it with tofu and it's like a broth, it's like a stew and it's amazing. I can't find it anywhere else. It doesn't exist in America. It only exists in, I guess, even in Shanghai, maybe. I think maybe other places in China have it, but I've only had it from what my mom made. So it's my favorite. How do you say it in Cantonese? I only speak Mandarin. My husband speaks Cantonese. He's from Hong Kong. Wait, Shanghai is Cantonese, not Mandarin, correct? No, Shanghai is Shanghainese. We have our own dialect. (laughs) We are so special. Ignorant brown guy. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was being like so cool. Oh, yeah, I know. It's not Mandarin. And I was like, wow. I was like, how does Roman know she speaks Cantonese too? That's pretty awesome. I just inferred because you said, yeah, fail. That's really funny. Well, I can add a funny story to that, actually. My in-laws speak Cantonese. My parents speak Shanghainese. And my husband understands Mandarin, but isn't that great at speaking Mandarin. And I speak Shanghainese and Mandarin, but I don't understand Cantonese. So the first time I went to my in-laws, like I had no idea what they were saying. I couldn't even understand what they were saying, even though it's technically the same language. Same characters. You know, it's funny. I speak Kitchen Hindi, Kitchen Punjabi, barely any words, but I can hear it. If I see people or I hear it on TV or in a crowd, I don't know what they're saying half the time, but I know the language. It's so weird. And maybe it's because my parents just played so many Bollywood movies and so many songs and always spoke. I've been around a lot of people speaking it. Yeah. So I can like pick it up. The familiar, And it's a very familiar, comforting thing to hear in an airport. It is. Yeah. Whenever I hear Shanghainese, I'm like, oh. But it's also really weird because for some reason, Japanese can sometimes sound like Shanghainese too. So like when some people are speaking Japanese, I'll like turn around and then I'm like, wait, that's not. That's not Shanghainese. <laughs> so how do you say it in Shanghainese? Yeah, so it's wujing. And I in Mandarin, it's hejiyu. <laughs> yeah. Tonal languages, the bane <laughs> of Americans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tough. <laughs> What's your least favorite food? My least favorite food. Honestly, this is going to be a very Chinese answer, but I pretty much eat everything. Come on. You don't have yeah, veto rights nothing, on anything? Anything once. But if you had to choose a place for dinner, is there any kind of cuisine where you'd say, oh, I definitely don't want that? Or if you looked at a menu and you saw a dish, are there any dishes where you're like, eh, I'm just not feeling that ever? I think it would have to be something like a Big Mac. Okay. <laughs> Whereas I, I'll be like, yeah. eh, uh, I could do without one. Yeah. Big Mac. That fits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd rather have Shake Shack or In-N-Out. Right. I'm with you on that one. Here's a good one for you. You probably have an answer for this. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Ugh, there are way too many. You only get There's, one. You only get you to only play get the one. card once. Because so many people are listening to this. It's it's going to happen once you say this. Oh, I wish. That would be amazing. I actually really want to interview Tammy Duckworth. Nice. So, our, our presumptive VP pick. Yeah. And I actually have been trying to interview her for the past year and a half because I think she just has such an interesting story being both a veteran and Asian and also disabled, right? Like she just has so many incredible stories around her. And I think just being able to understand where she's coming from, why she decided to serve the country and what she thinks America needs from her specific lens. I feel like that could be a really interesting person to interview. Well, Tammy, I know you're one of our 10 people who listen to this podcast. So go listen to Lucia's because totally <laughs> I'm telling you, you, you must do this for our friend Lucia. <laughs> or just email me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lucia, last question. Are you ready? Mm-hmm, yeah. What does being a model minority mean for you? Being a model minority, I think is a fallacy because 
I don't think model minorities exist anywhere in the world. I mean, I think we could either get like technical and just say that, you know, model minority, the model minority myth was created to paint Asians in a better light and drive a wedge between Asians and other races. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or we can get philosophical and we can kind of pontificate about what that even means or why it exists. I think the thing that's interesting is that most Americans think of model minority from an American lens, right? They think, oh, it's Asians in America, but they don't think about minorities in other countries, right? So when I was living in China, white people were the minority. And so when you talk about model minority, were they the exemplary minorities? Like probably not, right? So it's interesting if you kind of take that context out into like an international level and examine it and realize that it feels it's just, it doesn't really exist. (laughs) And I think what we need to be able to do is to be able to challenge that and kind of going back to rocking the boat, which is like challenging that status quo of being a part of this monolith that quite frankly is made up to the detriment, especially of our community. I don't actually disagree. I think it's something we want to turn on its head because one of the things we say in the show is like, we're all model minorities, whether you're white or black. And it's, I like where you're coming from with your answer. And I like what you're trying to do with your show. So I just, I love having debates about philosophy mm-hmm. <laughs> and Me too. with really smart people. So just thank you for doing what you're doing on your show. And thanks for coming and sharing a little bit more with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. And she goes, you're coming in at all these weird hours. Are you you're doing the drugs? And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm doing stand-up comedy. And I think at that point, she would have rather me say I was doing drugs because she could have put me in intervention or she could have put me in rehab because there is no rehab for comedy. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.